0: I want to start with a phrase that's maybe a little bit popular in the sports and business world. There's a saying that goes, go big or go home. Have you ever heard that phrase? Go big or go home. It means to be extravagant, to go all out with what you're doing. It means whatever you're doing, you should give it everything you've got. And it means if you don't go all out, then you should do what? Go home. Just go home. And I think we can apply this to the Christian life, too. And I don't mean this in a harsh way, but God didn't save us just to coast through life. Excuse me, let me move these over. That's going to trip me up. God didn't save us just to to coast through life. He didn't bring us to Jesus to do a half-hearted job of serving others and caring for others. We should go big in the Christian life. We should give big, we should believe God for big things, and we should attempt big things for God. And if not, maybe we should just go home. In our text for this morning, we, should, we see that we should pray big. Pray big things. Pray big for the glory of God. If you're visiting with us, we just started a new series in the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian believers to encourage them. To encourage him to press on together for the sake of the gospel. They had partnered with him in the gospel. They had sent him money. They had sent him people to go and encourage him. They had participated themselves in proclaiming the gospel. They were active in preaching Jesus to others. So Paul wrote to encourage them. They were having to go through some tough times. Persecution and pressure. They might would be tempted to just pack up and, and call it quits. Or they might have been having pressure to kind of tone down the preaching of Jesus a little bit because they might get thrown in jail like Paul. That's not at all what Paul wanted. Paul wants them to press on. And last week we saw how he encouraged them by expressing his thanks. He said, I thank my God for you for these reasons because you've been a partner with me in the gospel. He reminded them that God is faithful. Remember that? He who began a good work in you will carry it out to the end. And he reminded them of his love for them. All so that they would be encouraged. So they'd be strengthened to run the race that was in front of them. Now this week we finish up Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. Last week we covered his thanksgiving. That was kind of roughly verses 1 through 8. And this week we see the content of of all those prayers Paul's making for the Philippians. Remember he said, In all my prayers for you, I'm always making mention of you with joy. This is the content of those prayers. You see, he shares with them what he's praying for them. Just like Thanksgiving is better when it's expressed, so is prayer. When we not only pray for others, but we tell them, I'm praying for you. And guess what? This is what I'm praying for you. And Paul goes big in his prayer. He prays a big prayer for for big growth in the Philippians, that they would finish strong, and he prays for the glory of our great God. As we go through this prayer, looking at its content, let's be thinking of our own prayers. Are we praying like Paul? Are we going big in our prayers like Paul did here? Or do we get into a rut where we just pray the same small prayers every day? I'm not talking about the fancy language Paul uses. We might say, well, I can't express myself in that way. But I'm talking about the content, the goals of his prayer. The goals are big, and so so they're for, for God's glory and for God's people. Let's look at this passage together. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. I've got to get there first. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now before we get to the details of this prayer, I want to show you the flow of his prayer, the flow of argument, the flow of logic that he uses, the progression of it. This is his prayer that their love would increase more and more, but specifically that it would increase in knowledge and in discernment, or depth of insight. Why was that his prayer? So that they would be able to approve those things which are best, those things which are excellent and godly. Why did he want them to be able to approve what's excellent? So that when the end comes, they would stand before Jesus Christ, pure and blameless. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. And why did Paul want them to be able to do that? To stand before God as pure and blameless? So that it would all go to the praise and glory of God. Do You see the logic, the flow of his prayer? It builds, each, each phrase builds one on top of the other. And it all comes out for the glory of God the overarching purpose in his prayer. This is a big prayer. He's not just content to pray for their safety or for their comfort. That would have been totally appropriate, right? With the pressure they were going through, the persecution they were going through, but he doesn't. He prays for their growth, their endurance, and for the glory of God. So we'll look at this prayer in more detail in three parts. First, Paul prays for big growth. Verses 9 through 10a. Second, Paul prays for a big finish, verses 10b through 11a, kind of splitting them up short phrases there. And third, Paul prays with a big goal in mind, namely the glory of God. That's verse 11b. Take a look first at verse 9, at what Paul prays for, the content. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So he doesn't just pray for safety or comfort or convenience but for spiritual growth. He sees that as the most important thing for the Philippians, even in their time of persecution. He prays for something big, spiritual growth. Now, to abound means to overflow. To overflow, to spill out over the top, kind of like if a three-year-old pours his own glass of orange juice. Have you ever seen that? It has a heavy half-gallon carton of orange juice and starts pouring it and pouring it and then it gets top heavy and what happens? It all just gushes out and it's spilling over the top of the cup. Overflowing. I've seen this firsthand, (laughs) right? You probably have too. That's what Paul has in mind here. Overflowing. I want your love to overflow in knowledge and in discernment. It means that Paul wanted their love to be growing and increasing continually day after day. Now he doesn't mean that their love isn't doesn't have knowledge and discernment. Notice how he says, "I want it to grow more and more." So this is something you might say to someone when you don't at all mean to imply that they don't have it. You might say to someone, "I, I want you. I, my prayer for you is that you would know Christ more and more, that you would love Christ more and more." You're not saying they don't know Christ or they don't love Him. You're saying they do, and it's your desire that they would know Him and love Him. More and more, just that it would keep growing. That's his prayer for the Philippians. You see, he wanted spiritual growth because lack of spiritual growth, lack of growth is a sure sign that something is dead. If if it becomes stagnant, if it's not growing anymore, if it's not moving anymore, it might be a sign that it's dead. We want to be growing Christians, don't we? Do we want to be growing Christians? In knowledge of God? In love for God in service to one another? We want to be growing Christians. And that's what Paul wanted for the Philippians. But he explains more in detail what he means. He wants their love to grow more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. So his prayer is very specific. So what does that mean to grow in, in knowledge and in discernment? Knowledge, in this passage, seems to be referring to knowing God in a personal way. It refers to knowing who who God is, what He's like, what He likes. Knowing all about God, but also knowing God in a personal relationship. And then depth of insight or discernment refers to more practical matters. How to live the Christian life. How to live a righteous life. It's a matter of making decisions and choosing the things that please God. Discernment. right? Choosing the good over the bad. This is what Paul wanted. He wanted their love to increase in these ways. To increase in knowing God. He wanted their love to be informed by the Word of God so that they could please Him. And the purpose of this, as he says, was so that they would be able to approve what is excellent, what is godly, what really matters in life. You see, the truth of the matter is love, true love, results in approving what is excellent now sometimes people will say or or they'll pit love against knowledge they'll say love and knowledge are are distinct and they really don't you you can have a head knowledge and a heart knowledge and that's true but really love results in approving what is excellent and there has to be knowledge there it's not disconnected from knowing God And it's not disconnected from ethics and morality, although some try to say that love trumps rules or love trumps ethics and morality. Really, God's Word informs us what love is and how to live in a way that pleases Him. True love results in obedience to God. Paul's prayer reminds me of how my prayers are sometimes little or somewhat short-sighted, somewhat shallow, of how I can get into a rut of repeating the same shallow prayers over and over. Anybody else have that problem? And Paul's prayer here shocks me into my senses. It reminds me of what prayer is supposed to be like. What am I praying for people? What am I asking God to to do for the sake of others? It might would help us if we start thinking of our prayers for others as or in terms of ordering a meal for someone at a restaurant. Have you ever done that? Anybody ever done that? Ordered a meal for somebody else? That are, I, I've never done it, I don't think. I don't think I've ever seen other people do it, but I've seen it in the movies. You know, somebody will order what they want and she'll have the, the lobster with you know. they'll order. They'll order for the other person. Let's say you sit down to dinner with someone and you're ordering their meal. They hadn't eaten in a while, they're hungry, and need something nutritious and to help them out you would want to give them something strong and healthy so, so let's say you order them and you say yes he'll have a bag of Cheetos and a chocolate milkshake <laughs> now they might like that and we might like that right it'd be tasty We like Cheetos most, most people like Cheetos I guess and we like chocolate milkshakes it sounds tasty but does that give him what he needs? does that give him what he's going to need to grow strong? to have a full belly, to be able to, to work and go about his business, is it going to last very long? No, it's not. You sure should have ordered him something more nutritious, more sustaining, a steak and a side of vegetables, something going to give him strength and nourishment. It's going to be good for him. And I think all too often we pray like this other instance. We pray for one another small prayers. And how, how much more important is the spiritual realm than the physical realm? Instead of ordering up for each other something that will be spiritually refreshing and strengthening, we settle for smaller things like comfort, convenience, health. We offer up little wimpy prayers. What might be even worse, though, is that those are the kinds of prayers we might want. What kind of prayers do you want others to say for you? Just that you would be comfortable? Just that you would feel good? Now, we we should pray for those things. We should pray comfort for other, other believers. We should pray physical healing for others. But let's think big in our prayers for each other. Let's ask for big prayers and let's pray big prayers for each other. Let's order up the spiritual stake for each other that we would grow and be healthy and be spiritually mature. How do we do that? How do we make our prayers bigger to be more more in line with what Paul prays here for the Philippians? And I just have uh, maybe three tips for doing this. First, pray with your eyes focused on what is invisible. Pray for your eyes focus, Pray with your eyes focused on what is invisible. That is spiritual. Don't just keep the spiritual in mind. Put it at the forefront of your mind. Think spiritual before physical. Because even if you're praying for the physical concerns, there's always a spiritual concern lying underneath it. That's deeper. It's even a greater need than the physical need. Pray for the spiritual. Second, put more substance to your prayers. Put more meat on your prayers. What I mean by this is that we need to think about our prayers. It takes time. We need to think. What do I want for this person? What does God want for this person? And how can I pray for, for not just their outward life, not just their physical life, but for their spiritual life? This takes work. And I guess that's one of the reasons we, we maybe don't like to do it. Because thinking is work. But we're going to have to do that if we want to pray big prayers for each other. And if we want to help each other through our prayers to grow spiritually. And then third, request big prayers from others. Request big prayers for other, from others. Has anyone ever asked you, how can I pray for you? And you answered, well, there's not much I, I really need right now. Thanks really? You don't need prayer? We do need prayer. I know what you really mean. You really mean there's nothing, you know, big going on in your life right now, nothing noteworthy going on. You don't want to complain about anything. But I have a challenge for you. The next time somebody asks you that question, how can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? I want you to be ready and to know your response. So that's going to take some forward thinking on your part. That's going to take some thinking today. Think about what God wants for you. What does he want for you? What would please God in your spiritual life? Where does he want you to grow? In what areas do you need to grow? And when someone asks you, "Can I pray for you?" How can I pray for you? You'll be ready. And you'll say, oh, "I want to grow spiritually. You know, I'm really lacking in this area of knowledge in the scripture and and who Christ is, and I would really like to grow in that area. My prayer life's been really suffering. Could you pray for me? That I would go to the Lord more often and with genuine, heartfelt desire to please Him, pray to Him. Be ready when someone asks you and ask for big prayers from others. Paul prays a big prayer for the Philippians, their spiritual growth, but it's also connected with their endurance. It's also connected with a big finish. Here's what I mean. Paul prays that their love would continually grow and overflow in knowledge and in discernment so that they would approve what is excellent and godly. And the reason he wanted this is because he wanted them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, for the end, for the second coming of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. So Paul's eyes here are not only focused on the present, they're focused on the the end, the finish line for the Philippians. This is what he wants for the Philippians. He imagines them standing on judgment day before their Creator. And he imagines what they will look like as they stand there. He imagines them, he wants them, he prays for them to stand there in purity, without blame, Without fault, not ashamed of anything, filled with righteous fruit, which comes from Jesus. Paul prays for their endurance, that they would not only now continue to grow, but throughout the rest of their lives, they would continue to grow until the day when Christ returned. He prays they would have a strong race and have a big finish. I once once heard a preacher say, when you stand before God, you better be as close to perfect as possible or it's going to be really bad. But that's not quite right, is it? Actually, it's worse than that. When you stand before God, you better not just be near perfect. You better be perfect. You better be pure and blameless because this is what God requires for a person to be in His Presence. So let me stop and ask you for a second this. In all honesty, can you say that you are pure and blameless? Pure, without blemish, without an ounce of sin or evil within you. See, a lot of people feel comfortable saying they're good people. I don't know of anyone who would say that they are pure and blameless. That they are perfect. We all know deep down that we are not pure. But it's not just that we have a few small specks of of sinfulness in it, is it? The scripture talks about this and we use a term called total depravity. All of our being, every part of me is affected by sin in some way. We are sinners. Our hearts are sinful and impure. The whole of us is impure. Been completely corrupted by sin. So what will you do when you stand before your Maker? Impure and with blame, impure and with fault. You must be pure and blameless, and you're not. And you can't say, well, oh, God's good, so he'll just let me go. But it's for the for the reason that he is good, he won't let you go. Sin must be punished. How will you stand before him and escape his judgment? Thankfully, Paul clues us in here. Look at the first part of verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes where? Through Jesus Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. This is a further description of what Paul wants for the Philippians when they're standing before their maker. It's a further description of pure and blameless. The fruit of righteousness is talking about deeds or works of godliness. And this comes to us through Jesus Christ. Christians are filled with fruit through Jesus Christ. So who is this source of righteousness? You can answer. Who is this source? Jesus. It comes through Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He always kept the law of God. He always did everything in accordance with what His Heavenly Father wanted. He was the pure and blameless He is the righteous one. He is holy. And yet He died as the perfect Lamb of God, as the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. He was a sacrifice for sinners when He died on the cross, putting Himself in their place, receiving their punishment on His own head. So how do you get that righteousness? If Jesus has the righteousness, if He's the source of righteousness, how do you get access to it? How do you become filled with the fruit of Jesus' righteousness. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 5-6. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. to have this fruit, you must be connected to Jesus, the vine. You must be a branch on His vine. You must be united to Jesus. As Jesus said, you must abide in Him. Paul puts it another way later in this own book, chapter 3. You must be found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of your own, but one that comes through faith in Jesus. It's in We could call it an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves, a foreign righteousness. It's not ours, but it's given to us as a gift. And you receive this gift by turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus to save you. We are united to Christ by faith in Him. And then, what will happen is that He will fill you with His fruit. Fruit of righteous deeds. Fruit of godly living. So the fruit is produced on the end of the branches, but its source is divine. Its source is Jesus. And in the end, all those who have come to Jesus, all those who have trusted in Him and been connected to Him, we will stand before God, pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ. It's not our own. It's not our own purity. It's not our own blamelessness. It is ours as a gift from God. And it's not our own fruit. It's done through Jesus. We have nothing to boast about. It's all for His glory. And that's what Paul says in the final part of his prayer. What was Paul's goal? What did he want more than anything else? What drove him to work, to strive, to press on for the sake of the gospel? His goal was that in the end, God alone would receive all the praise and the glory. That God would be glorified. As the Baptist Catechism says, man's chief end, chief purpose, chief goal, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Paul knew that salvation wasn't an end in itself. Being made righteous, being filled with the fruit of His Spirit, living godly lives, those weren't the end goal. Those weren't the ultimate goal. There's just one ultimate goal, and it's the glory of God. That's why all things were created. That's why all things exist and are sustained, for the glory of God. That's why God made a promise to save sinners, and why He fulfills that promise. That's even why there's a place called hell. That God would be glorified, even in His judgment over those who rejected Him. And here, too, Paul sees that spiritual growth, endurance to the end, would all go to the praise and glory of God. Why? How can their spiritual progress and growth go for God's glory? Didn't they do it? Didn't they they do all those good deeds? Weren't they the ones who were kind and cared for others? Wouldn't the praise and glory be theirs then? Sometimes we have made a mistake and thought this way. We know that our salvation... Is just a free gift of grace, just lavished upon us. But sometimes we think our sanctification, our growth in holiness, comes by works. It's not what Paul says in Galatians 3, though. He chides the Galatians for trying to improve their lives by works of the law, by obeying rules, by trying to be better. Salvation is by grace, but so is sanctification. So is growth in holiness. It's a gift that has come from God. As we believe in Him, as we hear the Gospel and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that He has saved me and He is working to produce His fruit in me. We grow by hearing the Gospel of Jesus. Week after week, as it is preached in the assembly, as we hear of the life, death, and resurrection for sinners... Weekly, this is how we grow, not by our own power, but by the power of God, and that is why God gets the glory. It's His work, not ours. It's His power, not ours. So even our sanctification and perseverance to the end will not go for our glory, but all of it will redound to the glory of God alone. Uh, I googled the other day, what is the ultimate goal in your life? I was interested in what answers I might get. It's kind of like a random poll, you know. What is the ultimate goal in your life? Here are some answers that I found. To be able to look in the past and be proud of myself for what I did and what I accomplished. To work hard, to play hard, to accomplish any goals that I set for myself. To really help someone, and to make people around me happy. To outlive both my (laughs) ex-wives. To see the world. To raise my children, and to be happy and successful. Now except for the one about the ex-wives, those are all okay, noble goals, right? Those are good goals we should have. They're reasonable, but in an answer to a question like that, to a big question like that, you want to go big, right? go big what is the ultimate goal of your life why do i exist have you have you given thought to that question have you given thought to that question just i just thought of this poem as i was sitting in the pew earlier and pulled it up on my phone it's by uh, ct stud and it talks about this it goes like this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart. And from my mind would not depart. Only one life it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victor score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Be thought of that. We just have one life. We just have one shot at it. What's your purpose? What's the ultimate goal of your life? And are you spending it for that goal? Let's pray together. Our dear Father, as we remember that this is our only life to please you and to glorify you, we we have to ask forgiveness for the times we have gone astray and the times we have wasted precious time. And the times we have gone after things of this world and the ways of this world, and we pray that you would convict us so that we would turn again to our risen Savior who died for us and rose again. Heavenly Father, help us to remember each day is a gift from you, that only what's done in your name and for your glory is going to last into eternity.